Welcome to another episode of the Sparkcom Podcast. How are you doing today, Adam? I'm doing great, Manny. How are you? Doing very well. Doing very well. Uh, we're reminded as uh, human beings on this earth every day uh, by what's going on in the world around us, particularly things like COVID and um, you know all the things on the market, the upcoming election. We're constantly reminded that we're we're members of this earth. Correct. Yeah. Did you see this week that there was an asteroid that missed the planet by 1,360 kilometers or miles and they almost didn't see it? They saw it only after it passed the Earth? Yeah, yeah, I did Remind see you that. that. We're just a dot out there, huh? We're just a dot. And, you know, innovation is something that is, uh, and especially disruptive innovation, that comes into play in different forms, right? We talk about the, the four major trends. And there's a bunch of uh, you know minor trends and trend following is a big deal, understanding uh, where the market is going. And so we have a very special guest today that we're going to speak with that ties in a little bit of uh, kind of what you mentioned with this asteroid and what I mentioned about being on this earth. Um, his name is Tabor McCallum. He is the co-CEO and founder of, and, uh, of a company called uh, The Space Perspective, a human space fight company that is taking people on payloads to the edge of space using high altitude balloons. So he's chairman of the Commercial Space Flight Federation, and he co-founded Worldview Enterprises um, here locally in Tucson. I've known Tabor for many years and have uh, really been fascinated by his story. So I'd like to bring him on board uh, and uh, start the conversation on um, how he sees the future of this brand new market being that of taking basically a vacation into near space. So with that, good timing. Good morning to you, Tabor. How are you? Good morning. Doing great. How are you doing? Excellent. Excellent. I just gave your brief introduction and uh, we're talking a little uh -oh. bit today about, um, you know, we're here on earth and of course COVID is in front of us all the time. On sort of the negative side. On the positive side, we're surrounded by lots of beautiful things and um, things like trends, which we talk about a lot on the show. Uh, and I wanted to bring you on the show to talk a little bit and understand uh, from your perspective where the trend for space tourism is going and just get your thoughts globally here. Um, Adam Hartung is, is also on the line and is gonna be asking some questions and getting some thoughts. Awesome, hi Adam. Uh, well, so, you know, space tourism is obviously sort of an extension of commercial space. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea for commercial space is as old as science fiction, right? Everybody wrote about, you know, people's private spacecraft and private companies going to the moon and things like that. Uh, what's, what's really making it, it, it's been like an overnight success that took 30 years. <laughs> Uh, to happen, but you know, of course, we see SpaceX now uh, carrying people uh, and talking about space tourism and very actively working space tourism. Uh, we had an IPO with Virgin. Um, you know, Blue Origin's been working on, on their offering, and so you know, it's it's coming real. People are buying tickets to to, to go to space, and uh, where Space Perspective comes in is that uh, you know all of those are very expensive rocket rides especially going to um, and uh, there is an absolute need for sort of a lower level and much more accessible 
way to get to the edge of space and, and, and see what astronauts talk about, see the curvature of the Earth and the black sky, you know, the, the Earth in the context of space. Uh, and that's a really valuable experience uh, that I think is also an experience that a lot of people should have. You, you imagine if every school had a teacher that had been to the edge of space and could talk about that firsthand to inspire kids. So there's, uh, you know, th there's a lot of things we can do if we can make access to space much easier. I'd like you to expand on that. Um, we talk a lot about how important it is for entrepreneurs to understand undermet or unmet needs. And successful entrepreneurs are the ones who identify the needs and then come up with a value delivery system to make it happen. Um, I'm still not really clear on what the unmet or undermet need is that you're targeting. And I say that because it's never occurred to me to even, it's never, I've never had an interest to go to space. So um, I'm, I'm an uninformed person and I, I, could, I could be helped here. Well, um, uh, you know, uh, when Apple came out and started making this thing called an iPhone, Jobs said, people don't know what they want. I know what they want. So I would somewhat challenge the idea that um, identifying an unmet need that is sort of identified by other people is necessarily the primary ingredient, though it's a classic one, obviously. Um, more fundamentally, uh, a lot of people want to go to space. It's really interesting. Um, so I, a bit like you, said, uh, you know, is it just because I've been in the space industry for, you know, 30 odd years and I've been drinking all the Kool-Aid and that's why I think there was, there's, there's a market. So we had, you know, a top tier market research firm uh, uh, do an independent study for us uh, uh, we asked them not to use any of their space uh, people, but to purely tourism uh, side of the house uh, out of Zurich. And they came back with a huge market. Um, and it's, it's born out of a unique tourism that uh, people are buying experiences now much more than objects, that people want experiences that they can have with their family and friends. Um, uh, and, and the general trend towards uh, ecotourism is signified in that, and a lot of very high-end tourism. The high-end tourism market is growing, if you take this parenthetical moment of, of COVID out, uh, tremendously. Uh, in, you know, so these are uh, you know, high-end safaris to Africa and you know, fly-around-type type trips you know, at a very high price point. So um, the, the need is for... Uh, the next new experience, the next place to go. You know, quite literally, the world was running out of places to go. Well, it's fantastic that you were able to go do uh, a deeper dive into those needs. Uh, and again, not everybody has to have a, an unmet need. If you find a market, though, that's what's important. Um, our, a lot of our um, listeners and watchers are entrepreneurs, people getting started in new businesses. Give them a flavor. So that study you did sound like it really helped you make some good decisions and, and get yourself started. How much did you have to spend on that study to get this better understanding of the needs that customers have? Um, well, you can spend as much money on studies as, as you dare to pay. Yeah, that's uh, true. So uh, I'm not going to say how much this study cost us. It was less than um, you pay, you know, huge amounts. I think what a study does for you is 
uh, helps you identify if you have built-in bias that you, uh, and so, you know, always as an entrepreneur, you want to challenge yourself around yourself where your, your biases and assumptions are being challenged. And so by going to an outside group, um, you, you can really have someone who doesn't have a stake in this examine what you're saying. So now that could be a group of, a group of friends and experts that you, you know, you, you pay for a weekend at, you know, at a ranch or something, or, you know, it doesn't have to be um, your high end name firm. That's useful when you're going to the investment community and saying, see, I have independent confirmation. And that's very, I think, case dependent about whether or not you need to do that. But the fundamental premise of uh, have you set up a situation where skeptics have challenged your ideas uh, uh, is a really foundational step to take. So I like how you use this study of needs. You came up with a value proposition around tourism and space tourism. Where did the value delivery system, this ballooning, how did that come about that you would come up with that, that approach to deliver the value to your, to your potential customers? Well, you know, there's, there's no, there's never any new ideas in this world. Um, this is actually a pretty, you know, human ballooning flight thirties. I mean, you know, the first person to go above 50,000 feet into the stratosphere was actually in a balloon. Um, and uh, stratospheric ballooning has sort of continued from then the idea of tourism through stratospheric ballooning has been around for a while. Uh, and, and, and actually, uh, we started Worldview to do that before Worldview pivoted, pivoted to doing uh, uncrewed or um, uh, systems, which is another story. Um, what special is a confluence of enabling technologies. Um, battery power, composite structure power, efficient motors, uh, you know, laminates uh, that make the easier faster and stronger. Um, it, it's really that we've seen uh, a number of technologies come to fruition that put together enable larger systems like balloon-based edge of space tourism to occur. Uh, very similar to uh, altitude control system that Worldview does. It had, had the same basic issue. The idea of altitude control was old, but the technology wasn't there. You know, Adam, I don't know if you know this, but I, I have a little bit of a background in high altitude airships as well, or ballooning. I, I worked for a, a little time for a company out of Las Vegas that was working on some high altitude airships. And it's interesting, some of the markets that we were going after this was back in the uh, 2005 timeframe, was, uh, was in part um, a constellation of, of stratolites that would be across the US so that instead of satellites, you would lower down the balloon, change out the equipment, and then raise it up again. And uh, you know, in that sense, that would enable uh, higher, basically more coverage for uh, telecommunications and all of that. I mean, of course, this is 2005. So I think I might've had a Blackberry, but I don't even remember, I mean, it's a long time ago. But that what we talk about trends, Tabor, and one of the big trends that we talk about is the essentially mobility and uh, enabling that. And so, you know, having a, a uh, more robust 
communication systems always enables that, right? Uh, along the list of all these things, including harebrained ideas like a, like a casino up in the sky, uh, above any sort of laws, um, <laughs> persistent surveillance for things like, uh, well, military, of course, but things like, um, you know, natural disasters. In, at the time, tourism was kind of low in the list of where we're going after. And the reason why, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Tabor, was the cost structure was not supportive of a, of a larger market, right? I looked this morning and I guess you could take a ride on the Suez up to the space station for 50 million bucks. If you're, if you're really much, 50 million. Okay. Yep. That's about so, what SpaceX is charging to. Yeah. 52 million. I guess you gotta, you gotta pay a little extra, you know, or you gotta but, be a billionaire. You gotta be a billionaire. Right. So Tabor, help us understand how, you know, as a, uh, as a common person, so to speak, as somebody who doesn't have, a billion dollars in their bank account. I mean, what's the, how does, how do you join the, the, the unmet or the, this need that you're creating this new space that you're creating with the, the market? So uh, we're looking at a ticket, $125,000. Um, actually some of our research shows will get higher sales numbers if the price is higher um, uh, because it won't be seen like the cheap solution. Um, but the, uh, so that then, uh, when you look at buying patterns, especially for people who uh, are uh, a bit older, who wouldn't be able to take a rock ride anyway, the kids home, they've got their nest egg, they're prepared to spend a good chunk of their nest egg on something they've always wanted to do. You actually get down into, you know, sort of the million dollar net worth kind of range of people who uh, could, are willing to pay a good chunk of their nest egg to go do that experience that they've always wanted to do. And then of course it goes up from there. So it's a really interesting uh, uh, thing about space is that there are so many people that were, grew up going, I always wanted to go to space. And that creates a huge motivation. And you know, people like me who say, you know, I, I don't want to have lived my entire life on this planet and never seen it in its context of space. Uh, so it's, um, it, it's, uh, it, it's really interesting that the market goes as low as that in terms of sort of liquid assets. Uh, but um, we're fine that that seems to be holding. Um, but certainly even well above that, uh, you don't have to be a billionaire to be able to go. And we're also looking at uh, uh, organizations like Space for Humanity that uh, are philanthropic uh, in nature and uh, are buying full capsule rides to send teachers and artists and poets uh, uh, to bring back sort of the message to, to describe that experience. So you can also get to go now uh, if. Uh, for it uh, in something like uh, artistry. That's so is your, is your solution regulated? Are you, uh, does the FAA organization like that regulate you? And I see you're nodding your head yes. So let me, the follow-up question is we have entrepreneurs that have a great idea and then they'll, they'll say, oh, but you know, they run into realizing that that's regulated and they want to stop. Now we know some of the greatest entrepreneurs, Richard Branson with Virgin Airways, 
um, Elon Musk with Tesla, regulated industries. Tell us a little bit about your approach. You know, what, what was going through your head when you said, okay, I'm going to have to get this approved by regulators. And, and how did you get over the fact, what, why didn't it stop you? Because it stops a lot of entrepreneurs. Well, so interesting. Uh, regulation was one of the early gates uh, that we uh, had to check off before we decided to go raise money or think about this. Um, and uh, for us, it, uh, it's difficult if you're being regulated as a certified vehicle, like going to take responsibility for the safety of your tourists. Um, that uh, we're regulated some Virgin Galactica regulated. So we're regulated as a spacecraft. Um, and so that creates uh, the regulatory environment that allows us to uh, really do this. It's, it's the environment. Uh, so uh, we go licensing process that Virgin Galactic does or SpaceX does uh, when uh, when we get ready to. So yes, in in fact, in our case, it's really preferable to be regulated uh, because uh, the insurance environment uh, shuts up the liability environment. It's a much more known environment than to be not regulated. So. Uh, a regulated operation. It obviously takes some money to do what you're doing. We have a lot of entrepreneurs that want to bootstrap their businesses, but you know, really good ideas shouldn't be limited by the fact that you want to bootstrap. Tell us a little bit, did you have a background in raising money uh, and, and then how, how did you go about raising money for uh, meeting this unmet need? Uh, so uh, we've raised money uh, for ventures before, um, and there is a wide variety of ways and places uh, to raise. Uh, so it's a it's a venture firm, Silicon Valley uh, backed is primarily, but we also have a variety of people who to invest just because they they really believe in doing. The bootstrapping is. You're trying to do, you see bootstrapping very often in livestock companies where people want to do this because they want it to be their livestock. You know, if you are going to get side investing, you're going to have a mechanism in some you know, pretty near term way. So, you know, that the trajectory of the company and what you're doing, because you always have to be planning and figuring out how you're going to uh, provide the return on investment. So I don't think one is better than another. Um, some companies just can't be bootstrapped, uh, but if you decide to go get Silicon Valley investment, then uh, you know that's comes with the need to exit. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, now you've got a, a long history, Tabor. Um, both you and, and uh, Jane and you uh, can you can tell I've got a long history. Manny likes to pick on us. <laughs> no, I. I, I it, it's coming, Manny. I can see it. Yeah, it's, it's coming. Oh yeah, yeah, it's absolutely coming. I, I get it. Um, but we talk about you know I met you I think when you were at Paragon here in Tucson. You have a, a history with uh, you know being a, a biospherian. Uh, and so, you know, we look at a changing economy, 
changing of the guard with respect to the leadership. Last, uh, last episode, we talked about how uh, governmental leadership sort of sometimes inhibits growth. Um, Adam and I don't usually get political in this, uh, in this show, very rarely, and I, and I don't want to get political, but I do want to talk about a little bit different side. I mean, Adam mentioned regulatory, the, the regulatory side. What other obstacles have you had to face with both uh, your, your most recent in the space perspective and the previous worldview? What have you had to, uh, to deal with with respect to the environment? Uh, well, the, uh, you know, one of the aspects of being a regulated launch is that uh, you have to do, because you're a, a federally licensed activity, so if the federal government says, yes, you can go do something like launch a big balloon to the edge of space, um, need that an environmental assessment be conducted. So wherever we launch from uh, requires either a modification or a whole new environmental assessment, which uh, is a, a long, you know, a year or two long activity. Uh, and, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, our environment is greatly improved because of environmental regulation, uh, but boy, it can be uh, something that slows you down. Uh, one of the reasons that we do a splashdown versus a land landing uh, is to avoid the need uh, to find and get approved landing locations. Um, and that was uh, in no small measure a regulatory issue. Uh, you know, Bureau of Land Management, et cetera, et cetera. So by taking off from a coastal area and splashing down, uh, the need to do these environmental assessments is greatly reduced. Um, uh, but then it turns out, and you know, as we get to look at it, that it also enables to globally expand. Um, because, you know, you think it's hard to find a launch in that southern, southwestern U.S., you know, try Europe or Asia, right? Um, uh, but if you launch from land or even ship and then recover in the water, that opens up the Mediterranean, that opens up the Indian Ocean, Pacific, huge operating. So uh, often the, the problem you're trying to solve when you solve it creates other interesting opportunities mm -hmm. you hadn't really identified before. Um, so uh, I think that's the, sort of the main sort of regulatory you know, the, the next thing you have to often worry about is insurance and make sure that you're insurable. And often that's mix of regulation and uh, what companies will do. And they're much more comfortable when there's an overlap in, in the regulation. So by being regulated as a spacecraft, for example, uh, the insurance requirements are set and the uh, ability for the government to cap your insurance needs is set. So it really sets up a much better environment for insurance than we would otherwise have. I'm sure the uh, the actuaries are just uh, their heads are exploding when you when you made that phone call. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing that Adam and I talk about a lot, and uh, you know, in part is you know nav navigating trends. And if you are in business and you uh, make a pivot that you really understand your value and really understand kind of a little bit yourself as a sort of a mindset as well and a little bit of courage and other things mixed in. Now you kind of made a big pivot 
maybe I, I would even take a step back and would say that uh, worldview made a pivot and then you made a pivot. Give maybe a little bit of history of all that and how you sure. decided to do that. Cause that took a lot of, uh, of gumption we'll say. <laughs> well, it, you know, it may have looked like it took a lot of gumption, but it was sort of the obvious thing to do. So here's the story. Um, so, uh, you know, we, uh, we started Paragon in Tucson and Paragon Space Development Corp is still doing great. Grant Anderson is running it, doing a marvelous job. Uh, they're, they're growing like crazy. Uh, and Paragon serves the space community uh, as a component subsystem supplier, doing life support environmental control. Great, it was a fantastic company. Um, and, you know, we began as the space tourism market began to become really apparent with virgins getting funding and the like it's sort of the uh the 2009 time frame look at sort of system level space tourism uh, about 2011 uh the whole idea of balloon based tourism began to really take focus um and we started working on that <clears throat> and uh in the process of looking at funding uh, asking around, we got put in touch with uh, Alan Eustace, who wanted to jump on the edge of space. Uh, so uh, that was a marvelous project to to do, and Alan is an extraordinary person who's on our board, actually, at Space Perspective. Uh, so during the course of that uh, work, we uh, uh, applied these test flights without a person on, Lots and lots of sensors that were telling us exactly what the winds were doing, sort of inadvertently. We we had the sensors on because we were supersonically skydiving Alan back down to Earth, so we needed super high-speed sensors. Uh, and as we slowly ascended through the stratosphere, those sensors showed us layers of uh, in the atmosphere to be used for navigation that really hadn't been uh, seen before, uh, or, or certainly not published. Uh, so that made us say, wow, if we could very accurately control the altitude of a balloon, we could surf those layers. Well, now those layers are much more understood. Google Loon uses them. Other, other companies are trying to use them. Um, but at the time, they weren't. Uh, so that made us say, well, if we could do an un uncrewed, an unmanned platform that would do all the things you talked about, Manny, you know, remote sensing and communications, and we'd be able to put you know, a camera at 70,000 feet or 50,000 feet, which would get phenomenal resolution, be able to bounce, you know, cell phone, do all this kind of stuff. Uh, so that, uh, it is say, let's do the unmanned platform first in, in small measure, because this is a very, or in large measure, because this is a very time-constrained opportunity. Other people are going to find out about these layers. Uh, and also, operationalizing the stratosphere is the big trick for both human flight and unmanned flight. Let's learn about operationalizing the stratosphere first with this unmanned opportunity, and then to human flight. So the pivot really surrounded uh, a you know a high altitude platform opportunity that we didn't uh, we didn't know how to do before we got this data, uh, and then with worldview completely focused on the high altitude platform work now, which is great. Ryan Hartman's doing a super job. They're they're flying like crazy. It's excellent. Uh, we decided to once we had a new CEO installed, we had management in. 
really go and look at human flight again, but take all the sort of know-how, the general lessons, not technology, but just general understanding of how to operationalize the stratosphere and uh, put together a new ConOps. And one of those innovations was things like splashing down and a series of technologies that enable that. So, you know, what looks like a series of pivots at the time really looks like a series of smart moves, <laughs> but you have to have the guts to go do it, right? Yeah, very true. Uh, it's a tremendous story of how you identified the needs, really searched them out to find out your target, get your value proposition, then put together your value delivery system to meet your value proposition, and then learning all the way through the process using external data. It's just a great story. I mean, entrepreneurs should learn from this uh, in a big way. Too many of them come at something like, oh, I want to go make a cake, and so therefore I want to go do my thing, and I'm sure the world will love my thing. And uh, here you had a passion, but you used the outside world to guide your passion, direct your efforts, and uh, that's just fantastic. And it's no wonder you've been successful given the approach you've used. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's a very humbling thing to start a company. Um, you know, you, you work hard to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you are and who will tell you to your face when you're, you, know, you need <laughs> telling, right? Um, and uh, uh, we've managed to do that um, and uh, be humbled by the engineering process and be humbled by the environment. Uh, uh, you know, you, you, uh, uh, you have to have, hold two things in mind, right? You have to hold that, uh, you know, human achievement, the, the, the amazing things that human achievement will occur, the faith that you can and will prevail at the end, at the same time as, you know, a really stark, unvarnished look at you know, your, your real current situation, right? And, and you can't let either, you can't collapse that sort of dyad between those two things. They, you have to hold them both at the same time. And that, um, that was a really interesting lesson for me because I kept on trying to like be one or the other. And when I realized that the secret is holding both at the same time, uh, then uh, that really sort of freed me up to, to really embrace uh, hard feedback, what they thought, at the same time not having that shatter my belief that we will be successful. Well, it just goes to show good entrepreneurs have good ears. And some people you know, get into the entrepreneurial business with their ears shut and their mouth wide open, thinking they've got the answer. And what you've been telling us again and again is that you, you've, you've, you've let the world give you information and direct you and you've listened very carefully to find your path. And that's, a, that's a really good lesson for entrepreneurs to have. Absolutely. You know, Adam, I'd like to close this segment today with, um, uh, with sort of explaining the, the four major trends to Tabor because I believe that as under, under the layers of these, these different trends that we, we follow and we, uh, we're part of, uh, the space perspective might interweave through some of them in, in what you're doing. Awesome. Adam, would you like to take oh, a shot? Oh, you want me to do yeah. that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what we're looking at is that uh, it, it, the synthesizing of what's going on in the world today, the, the trends that are really driving a lot of behavior, pandemic and power star. Uh, 
uh, people want to be mobile. They want to get around the world. They want to do more stuff. They want to have these experiences. So mobility is a big one. The second one is that they operate in an asynchronous method. Um, you, the, having to put everybody in a room at the same time is very difficult and inefficient. So anything that adds asynchronous behavior is very helpful. The third one is adding artificial intelligence. If I do something two times, I want somebody to observe that I've done it and make it so that I don't have to drive the decision process again and again and again. So building intelligence into the system so that it, keep, it keeps learning along, the product solution keeps learning along with my behaviors. And the last one is taking advantage of the gig economy. We're never gonna go back to being a, a planet that's driven by the uh, industrial era sort of notions of giant corporations where uh, layer upon layer management, difficult decision-making and holding people uh, close. That, that's, that's a bygone era. The, the gig economy with independence of thought and activity and utilizing those resources are, for, are, are, are really big for us. So those are the four big trends right now that we're seeing in 2020 that are gonna drive the next decade. Yeah, I think the, to go to one of those related to the asynchrony comment, um, uh, I'm finding that there are tools available now for collaborative engineering that are, are really gonna shake up things like systems engineering. Systems engineering, I have lots of problems with systems engineering, classic systems engineering, um, uh, but we're finding tools now that uh, are really enabling, you know, a math-based decision and information and design process that, that more of a process before. So, um, you know, I would add these, you know, software as tools, everything is software as a service now. Yep. Tremendously powerful tools. And what that does is allow smaller teams to do more. Uh, you know, when uh, we're building biosphere, we started off with everybody on drafting boards with pencils. And one weekend, we moved all those drafting boards out and we brought in AutoCAD, this new, fantastic, amazing thing that ran on a 386, right? <laughs> um, and so much in many ways it enabled bias. Um, and you can draw a straight line tools that enable small teams uh, and now tools that enable collaboration with small teams through to many of the technologies and innovations that we've seen today. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. That's great. Well, really appreciate your time, Tabor. Uh, this has been a very uh, illustrative conversation and uh, nice to get your perspective on things, of course. Thank you guys, it's been, it's been terrific. Great questions and a great conversation. Thank you for helping, uh, helping everybody uh, think about uh, the world as it's changing today. Awesome, thank you so much, Tabor. Take care. Cheers, bye-bye.